Hello, and welcome to In All Things, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a global movement of Evangelical Presbyterian churches. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, stated clerk of the EPC. Our prayer is that God uses Dean and his guests to both inform and inspire you about how God is working in and through the EPC. The motto of our family of churches is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean. And welcome, everybody. Great to have you back again for another edition of In All Things, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's a delight to welcome you again, whether you are uh, driving to work, um, working out on the Peloton, or just sitting at a place uh, where you can be still with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and uh, take in about a half-hour conversation that we have uh, every Friday uh, where you learn more about the life and ministry of the EPC. Grateful for you to come along and grateful for you to share the word uh, with others. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you know that uh, we have done a number of different things from introducing you to staff in the Office of the General Assembly and how they can serve you, your local congregation in Presbytery. We've also interviewed key leaders uh, in the EPC, people who either chair committees or ministries or task force, things that um, benefit uh, the larger life of the church. Uh, And then we have interspersed every now and then an EPC author, and we actually have quite a few. So uh, we have a a nice depth to draw from uh, as we continue on in this podcast, and that is exactly where we're going in our conversation today. Today we'll be having a conversation with um, a teaching elder in the EPC, Dustin Limegruber, and he has written a really fascinating book called The Sanctus Chronicles, The Plague of Tradium, and it's a fantasy literature novel, and um, I have a pleased to get an advanced copy of that and to look through and um, as a lover of um, uh, sanctified imagination. Um, I'm just grateful to dig into this and we're grateful to have Dustin on the show with us today. So Dustin, welcome to In All Things. Thank you so much for having me, Dean. So give us a little bit of background, Dustin. Uh, Married, children, call to the ministry, just to give us a little bit of context so we could get to know the, the EPC author today. Just the the very quick uh, version of how I became a Christian is that early on in my life, I had had a particularly bad church experience where I was one of the very few Jews in a rural area, and I showed up to a church service, and the church service was all about how awful Jews were. And so that was my... Yes. Oh my uh, gosh. So. And you, you, be, you became a follower of Jesus after that. This can be nothing more than the grace of God. That's stunning. Yeah, he likes to make a point on those things. And so I think that was the beginning of his setup. Right. Uh, and uh, so after that experience, I had uh, kind of a Pauline desire to watch the church fall, uh, not because I was a particularly Orthodox Jew, uh, but just because when I had all these really big questions about life, you know, I would ask these Christians who are supposed to be the spiritual folks, you know, how did we get here? Why do we exist? Doesn't make, you know, death make everything absurd and those sorts of things. They would just give very shallow Sunday school answers, and they would say, well, I believe in Jesus, and that means that you're going to hell, and I believe that because my pastor said it, and that was about as far as I could get with folks. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it, right? uh, That was it. Now, what it was that God said, they weren't real sure on, but they believed it. Right. And so I got into a Bible study at the very beginning of college with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship Mm. and finally read the Gospels, which I had not read up until that point. 
because I had had such negative experiences with Christians. And it turned out all those questions that I had been asking had answers right there in the gospel. Wow. And so from that point, I decided that I, uh, what I wanted to do was take this very well-hidden secret in the middle of the Bible Belt of all the places of being right there in kind of the Cincinnati area. And I wanted to go and tell people what it was, uh, both those people who did not consider themselves Christians like I didn't, and to let them know what it was, and those people who had been in the church their whole lives so that we could get deeper into discipleship. Were you starting to think of yourself as a Jesus follower at this point? Uh, yes, just at the very beginning of college. Okay. And you know, before then, I was a little bit more of a deist and not really knowing the difference between the two. Mm. Uh, but as I continued to read... I could see that this really was true, that these were historical books, this was a true thing, that the questions that I had been asking were answered with this in a, a way that was more likely true than anything else I had seen. So uh, that it's an interesting, um, if we could just press pause there for a second, Dustin, you know, mm -hmm. we have such a rising number of um, what they call them nuns, uh, people mm -hmm. who have yeah. no religious affiliation whatsoever and people who are actively even Christians who are deconstructing their faith. And so there's a, a rising kind of antagonism uh, towards the gospel. And yet the reading of the gospels enabled you to overcome the hurt from the church. Could you dig down into why that's maybe so important today? Yeah, I think that that's important, uh, both when you are looking at becoming a Christian and as you continue in being a Christian. I talk to so many people who are no longer uh, church attenders or maybe have lost their t faith entirely, and I almost never hear people say, well, I just kept reading the Bible and it stopped making sense. Mm. What I usually hear is somebody in the church did something sinful. Right. And if what we are depending on is the church being sinless, then we will always lose our faith uh, because we're all fallen human beings. But if you can go back to the scriptures and say, yes, the scriptures are true. God is who he says he is. He is true in his covenant, even when we are not. When those awful things happen, you still have the truth. You still have God, and you still have a mission in the midst of difficulties. That's an important message to hear today. I've got to think that perhaps your interest in in fantasy literature also taps into a similar audience, right? People who may not normally think of themselves as being spiritual in that regard, and yet maybe that opens up the door to uh, people entering into a world where through sanctified imagination, they're able to hear the good news. Oh, absolutely. Uh, when you look at the speculative genres, they have spiritual undertones, and they'll use different mechanisms to get at it. And so if you're looking at just the, the real classics of C.S. Lewis with the Chronicles of Narnia or Tolkien, then you are looking at a spiritual world, but it's just described by magic. And so it's an allegory for you know, what we're really talking about here, spiritual, spirituality, you know, angels, demons, heaven, hell, these big things. But we're framing it with elves and wizards and magic and all the rest of that. Right. So as you are going through you're able to wrestle with those concepts and think about those big things, and it can lead to a more sanctified imagination or a hope for something that is good and true and beautiful. Mm, that's well said. Just on a side note, Dustin, we'll have to come back and have a conversation about this another day since I think you're kind of a, a resident expert in the subject matter, but this 
recently I had some work to do over a weekend and uh, I wanted something on in the background that I didn't have to pay close attention to, but just kind of kept me company in my work. And so I, I had all three episodes of the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship mm-hmm. of the Ring, all the way up to the uh, Return of the King. But I had the extended versions on, which the extended version of the Return of the King was four hours. <laughs> it was crazy. And there was all kind of dialogue and lines and things in there that were not in the other movies. And um, I just, uh, you know, I found myself getting pulled away from my desk and, and getting in front of the television going, hold it. I got to rewind that. What did Gimli just say there? That was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's something about that kind of allegorical, fanciful approach that really draws us in? Do you have a sense of what it is about um, how we are made in God's image that it, why that kind of literature is particularly attractive or welcoming to people? I think that it casts good and evil and an epic struggle and a light that is sometimes more easy to relate to than the daily drudgery that we have. If we are thinking about a good knight that's slaying a dragon, and all of a sudden you have this Apollyon in front of you, if you want to go uh, back to uh, what you might consider to be the original Christian fantasy novel of you know, seeing Christian there fighting against the devil. Right. It's an image that sticks in your mind. It is an epic quest, and it is just a little bit more sharp than the way that we deal with those things in everyday life. The things that we deal with in everyday life can have a little bit more drudgery to them. But if we can view it in that fantastical way, it changes the way that we deal with those everyday mundane things to say, I am a knight in shining armor that's fighting this dragon, and I might be doing it through paperwork or through doing the dishes or whatever these mundane tasks are. But this is an epic struggle between good and evil, and I know that the good guys win in the end, but I also know that there's a struggle in the midst of it. Mm. And so being able to reframe what you're doing in a way that is true if fantastical in its in its shell or its skin uh, gets you deeper into what truth is. Well said. Well said. Now you've got me wanting to go back and, and dig in again. Well, let's talk about the Sanctus Chronicles. Is the Plague of Tradium the first in what will be a trilogy or a series? I'm hoping that it'll be a long series, but it is the first. Okay. And uh, learning the ropes as you go along, the first one took longer to write. Or rather, it, it didn't take that long to write, but it did take a while to edit and then uh, go through all of the different agents and publishers until I figured out that the best thing right now for the uh, independent Christian market is just to publish through Amazon. Uh, and once you get that figured out, hopefully the next will come a little bit faster. So I've always been curious to ask an author of fantasy books this question, Dustin. Do you already have the end figured out? Like, do you have all the the characters and the language and the places and the geography? Is that all kind of in there already? And and you're just kind of, um, it, it's sort of like, um, you know, a sculptor who sees the finished product in the in the stone and then goes and cuts it away until what was in there is now evident. Or is it something you're working on as you go along and you kind of um, evolve in your thinking about, oh, I thought maybe this place would look like this, but I'm going to add this dynamic to it or I'm going to add this language to it. Or uh, So is it a, something you kind of have the end from the beginning or are you developing it as you go along? That depends on the writer. Some people are extraordinarily structured. And if you looked at their outline for their book, it would almost be like a good sermon outline right. where you could see exactly what the point was and you just have to fill in the scenes. And other people just fly by the seat of their pants. But I'm a bit of a combination of the two. 
I have those big ideas of what I want to do. And so in the book, there are children who have mysteriously lost their parents. And I knew that the school was going to be a certain type of place and that there would be certain types of conflict as they went along with professors. But I didn't always know what that would be. And so sometimes I'd be writing along and think, okay, well, we need a conflict here or we need a vignette into this mystical book that pops up. What would this character do in this situation? What kind of professor would there be at an institution like this? And then just imagine into that scene. And occasionally that takes you in little side directions that are better than what you originally thought, but you're still able to stick to those main points as you go through. So introduce us to the characters and the main plot of the book. Give us an overview so people could lean in a little bit. The book started as just bedtime stories for my children, and this will help get you into the main characters. I was going to be out of the country for a week with my eldest, which meant that I wouldn't be there and on the same time schedule as the rest of the family, and I wanted to keep up the tradition of reading bedtime stories. So I thought, if I can just write a chapter of a bedtime story for every day that we're gone, I can read to my eldest when we're out of the country, and my wife can read the, uh, the same chapter to the rest of our children. And then whenever we do get to talk, we'll be able to discuss what happened. And so they had this revealed to them as I left, and it was a wonderful surprise. I don't like to spend a whole lot of time away from my family, so it was a comfort for everybody. And they went through the first chapter, and they learned that the protagonist's name was Paul. And they continued to go on. And then in the next chapters, they find out that the next protagonist's name is Hope. And that's when they figure out that these characters are the children. I just picked their middle names and made them the characters in the book. Okay. And so they took great joy in saying, oh, this is really us, but in a fantasy world. And that helps to make the story easier to write for the characters because right. I tried to do the same thing that C.S. Lewis does. I was going to say, that's, that's C.S. Lewis and his niece. Lucy is basically his niece, right? Mm-hmm. And so you just you take those characters that you know and you take the god that you know and you put them all in an alternate universe. And you say, how would they behave in this universe? And so you already have characters that have uh, struggles and things that excite them and ways that they play off of each other, but also the way they relate to God. And so as you're writing it, it makes it much easier, but as you're reading it, it does that same thing, because this really is a real God, and these are real people that we're reading about in fictional form. And so these uh, four children that are there in this school have recently lost their parents. There's a lot of confusion, something strange happened with the state, and their parents have vanished. And they're trying to figure out how to live in this boarding school that they've been put in. And it's a boarding school of magic. And so if people have read the Harry Potter series, it's a trope that's pretty familiar to most of going to a magical boarding school. But as they go through, they find that the professors will teach magic, but they don't really want the children to understand it or practice it or have it mean anything. They've just always done it this way. And the children are struggling for meaning. And as they're going through the school where the very people who are supposed to be pointing them to the meaning are the ones holding them back from it, they have to figure out how do they find meaning on their own. Mm -hmm. And so if you are listening to this and you are well-read in the scriptures, you might look back to see all of the religious, religious authorities in Jesus' day who were supposed to be the ones that were pointing the people to the meaning, but they were much more interested in, we've always done it this way. Or this is the thing that gives us power rather than truly pointing to God. And so if you're reading it, you can sense those themes if you're already well read in the scriptures. 
But if you're not, it gives you an in to talk about what's actually in the scriptures. Once you've read the story, you can say, oh, I see these themes. And if I talk about this with a, a Christian, they can point it to me. They can point me to the greater story and how this is really pointing upward to God. So is this uh, any sense autobiographical, Dustin? I mean, in the sense that you had, uh, as an outsider, came to the church, to people who should have had the answers, and they had the answers, but they really didn't want you to, to enter in. I mean, is there, is there a little bit of Dustin in there as well? I think uh, every book that somebody writes has to be autobiographical to some point. Gotcha. Um, but uh, yes, uh, you know, some of the the characters in there, you know, have uh, a fair bit in common with myself or somebody that I've known along the way. Sure. Or whatever it is, you just take a, an aspect, a virtue or a vice, and you think, oh, I know this person who really was kind of like a, a Disney villain. Right. And so let's put them into this. <laughs> or I know this person who's really virtuous, and that I'd want people to look at and say, oh, this is somebody that we should follow after. And you write them in as a character. Okay. And I, I would hope that if I would have picked up this book when I was younger, it would have been the kind of book that would have changed my mind and pointed me to the truth earlier than I was allowed to see it. So in order to advance the plot, uh, there has to be conflict. And you've already spoken to the protagonist, but there have to be antagonists. So right. uh, who, what, are the, what are the conflict points that, that progress the, the narrative forward and, and who are the antagonists? And, and then give us a sense. Don't, don't give us the resolutions because I want people to read, into, read the book for themselves, but point us in the right direction. There are several uh, protagonists in the book, but there are two main ones, the eldest male child as well as the eldest female child. And the eldest male child just loves to learn and will read absolutely anything, but is bored to death in class because class is the last place that you would learn. And because of the way that he's built, he runs into a conflict with the professors, and he is kicked out of one of the core classes. And without this class, you couldn't graduate. And so he is sent over to the head of reform, and he finds out that at the end of the year, if he is found to be reformed or not – and uh, some people listening to this podcast might pick up on that little nod there, if he is reformed or not, then he will either be welcomed back into school or he will not. And so he has to go on his own quest of learning to see if he will be considered worthy for the school. So he goes back and forth to the library where he is learning all these different things about the world, and he stumbles upon a mystical book. And this is a book that uh, just appears in the library. Nobody has seen it in a long time. This is an unearthed book. And as he's reading through, he finds all these little stories that point him forward to this majestic ram. And as he's reading about the ram, he's dealing with the difficulties that he has with his professors. And that helps him in that school year to try to figure out how to deal with those difficulties. Meanwhile, his sister, who is very much different than he is, is dealing with things with the family and also running afoul of the professors. Even though she's a very uh, polite and accommodating child, uh, she has dared to learn how to read. And the professors don't really care if the girls uh, know anything, and they really prefer it that they don't. They just have them as functionaries. You know, they might be seamstresses or something along those lines. But as far as actually learning what's going on, they prefer them not to. And so she it, is getting in trouble because she's learning what's actually going on in the world. And so both of them are kicked out of classes and have to struggle, keep their family safe, and toward the end of the book, keep the entire school safe from a mysterious plague that invades the castle walls. And that one's not too hard to figure out where that came from, given that I started writing this in early 2020. <laughs> okay. 
Well, it sounds fascinating. And I think this is a uh, reading level. What, what would you put it? I mean, obviously adults, uh, the, the beautiful thing about fantasy literature is that it allows adults and kids alike typically to access it. So what, what would you suggest as a, a age for reading? I really struggled when I was trying to get this traditionally published with answering that question because there are very uh, black and white niches. They, they want to say, well, is this a book that you're marketing to middle grade? And if so, this is the kind of language that you should have. And this is the sort of book that I think you can appreciate even before you're literate. When I was reading it to my children as a bedtime story, we had some that couldn't read yet. But even though the concepts were advanced and the language was advanced, they still took in quite a bit. And you can read that all the way up until you're an adult. And so I try to coin a term on this one and call this read aloud mid-grade. Say that again. Read aloud middle grade. Read aloud middle grade. Okay. Yeah. If you've got elementary school children that are just beginning to read, you can read this to them and they'll get quite a bit out of it, but you can also read it all the way up through adulthood. So this is a, a great book for that age range in the same way that you would read any fantasy book like that. And talk to us briefly, Dustin, about the value um, because you did this, this came out of the bedtime stories and the value of having time together as a family reading to your children. I, I think I probably read the Chronicles of Narnia to my kids growing up probably four or five times over. What is the value, in your view, of parents sitting down and reading with their children even at a young age? It's hard to answer all of the different things that could come from that. Uh, one of them is, is just a quality time. The children are there with their parents. Uh, they have modeling for reading as leisure and desiring to read. Uh, the, the content of it itself is setting children up to be able to think allegorically and think about deeper things. It opens up a time when you can have a discussion with your children of, oh, that was a fun story about the princess and the dragon. Uh, what are ways do you think that you could be like the the princess in this story and start to get that values education going on with your children, being like the protagonist and setting them up to also realize that they're heading into a, a dark and broken world, that the days are evil, but that God has sent his people here to do a work and that he is redeeming this world through his people. There are so many wonderful things that you can have through that daily reading time. I get to see it with my own children. Uh, we have five and two of them are pre-literate, but I've often seen them sitting together you know, nicely and quietly, and they're, they're pretty rambunctious kids. Uh, so it's not just that they're naturally quiet children, but they'll just be sitting next to each other leafing through a picture book uh, because they've seen that this is something that we do as a family and it's fun and we get to talk about it. And so that's just part of the family culture. That's awesome. Thank you. And um, as we wrap up here, Dustin, I understand some of the proceeds from your book are going to a good cause. Yes, uh, I'm sending the ebook proceeds to the work that Samaritan's Purse is doing in the Ukraine. So if you are getting this through ebook, then all the proceeds on that are being donated to the Ukraine. So the EPC is already doing uh, wonderful work there through a lot of different channels. Uh, but this is uh, one way if you'd like to help what's going on in Ukraine, you could get the ebook and know that all the proceeds are going there. Terrific. So it's great quality time with your kids. Begin to help develop the kind of neural pathways that uh, encourage critical thinking and understanding kind of uh, biblical worldview concepts in an accessible way in which they can learn through narrative and story, spending time together as a family, and proceeds going to a good cause. Uh, can't beat that. 
Um, so Dustin, uh, thank you so much for being with us and any final words you'd like to share with our audience today before we close? I'd just like to thank everybody for listening and I hope you go and check out the book. Uh, one of the things that we didn't talk about is that there's artwork in the book. If you get the, the hard copy, either soft or hardcover, uh, you'll see that there are several adult coloring book style illustrations and those are done by a Christian woman who has six kids, and she lives all the way on the other side of the world. So this is a woman from the Philippines who is just starting to make it for herself as an artist. So if you like beautiful illustrations or if you are a colorer, you can color right there in the book as you go along or make your kids like that. But that's just another fun feature that we have in the book, that you can engage both in the literary sense as well as the artistic sense. Very cool. The book is called The Sanctus Chronicles, The Plague of Tradium, and the author is teaching elder in the APC, Dustin Limegruber. And you can find that book on Amazon, uh, where you can either order the um, hard, soft copy, or you can get the ebook version where the proceeds help to support some Ukrainian relief. Dustin, thank you so much for being with us today on In All Things. Uh, thank you so much, Dean. So, my friends, uh, that brings us to the close of another installment of uh, this podcast. I hope that you'll share this with others, especially as you're looking ahead and making your summer reading list. You know, every summer I put together a small list. Usually my daughter actually puts together a small list and says, Dad, you've got to read these things. She's a vivacious reader, and I think her her strong habit of reading, and this is a, see, my daughter is 33 years old. She has three children under the age of six and one on the way. And last year, she, she read 54 books. And I can't imagine how a young mother of three uh, with one on the way has the ability to do that. But she is a vivacious reader. And I think a big part of that, and a critical thinker and a strong leader and, and a beautiful writer, uh, her writing is just gorgeous. But I, I, I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that, that Beth and I sat down with her and her siblings and we read through the, the Chronicles of Narnia. I actually had my own makeup fantasy story called The Trumpkins, which I've never put down pen to paper, but it was our own little fantasy story that we created as well. So I really appreciate what Dustin is doing here, and I hope that you'll support him. I hope that you'll take the time to invest in that relationship with your children and your grandchildren or a niece and nephew, and that you'll look for The Sanctus Chronicles, The Plague of Tradium online and add it to your summer reading list. Well, my friends, that brings us to a close for today. And as we always close, we want to close with that good word from God's word, which is in Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 18. You see, the son is the image of the invisible God. And he's the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. That's the thing I love about fantasy literature. It opens us up to this world of all things. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things, my friends, all things hold together, for he is the head of the body, the church. Until the next time when we gather together in this way, grace and peace to you, my friends, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining us on behalf of dean and the entire team we hope you will join us for our next episode of in all things for more information about the evangelical presbyterian church including a directory of local churches online resources and much more visit our website at www.epc.org i'm rachel joseph i pray you have an overwhelming sense of god's presence in all things today